Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be learning a lot, a lot about building, scaling, and then also uh, exiting businesses and, and financing them, going public, I mean, you name it. This founder has been at it on every single front that you can think of. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome him to the show. So Don Brown, welcome to the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. Nice to be here. So originally you were born in Maryland, but I understand that you did move quite a bit and you ended up in Indianapolis. So how was life uh, there growing up? It, it was it was good. Uh, you know, my dad uh, got out of the service and we moved the uh, family to uh, Indianapolis and it was, uh, you know, a good uh, kind of healthy place for a family to grow up. Really cool. And what would you say that got you into computers? Oh, well, you know, um, I was a physics major undergrad and uh, was looking for a way to stay in school as long as possible and uh, found a uh, combined degree program, uh, an MD-PhD program uh, that I uh, started off in biochemistry and thought I'd be a medical researcher someplace. Um, I ended up switching from uh, biochemistry to uh, the then young field of computer science I got my uh, graduate degree in computer science and just fell in love with programming. And I understand that the um, that writing college that's where when you created your your very first business is that right? Yeah, well, actually, in medical school. I was a, a, a second year uh, medical student and uh, had a, a buddy from undergrad who uh, operated a string of car dealerships with his father. And he asked me if I could write a program to uh, compute finance payments for uh, for their their customers. And so I went to the library, got a business uh, math book, and uh, wrote a little algorithm, and kind of took me off in an unexpected direction. So then, so then, tell me, tell t- tell us about this a little bit. So, so the company that is this, the name of it was Dealership Programming. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So then how did you guys really like incubate this idea? How did you launch it? And, and I believe that it was later acquired by electronic data systems. So, so tell us about the incubation process, the launch, and then also how you get it all the way to the finish line. Yeah, well, you know, it started off just with me writing uh, this uh, software for uh, their car dealerships, my buddy's car dealerships. 
Um, they started using it at the car dealerships. And he said, you know, we could sell this to other car dealers. And uh, that was a novel concept to, to me. You know, I was just trying to make a buck as a starving medical student. And um, so we hired another buddy from undergrad uh, to uh, drive around the Midwest and demonstrate our software. And, and we started selling it to other car dealers. And uh, so as I finished up medical school and was thinking about the next steps, I just decided, well, I'll, I'll roll with this for a, a couple of years and, you know, it'll probably crater and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll fall back on my uh, medical training. Uh, but fortunately, um, it did get acquired by uh, EDS. Uh, I, General Motors had acquired EDS and had given them the mission of writing similar software, uh, but you know, as is often the case, they had a hundred people and committee meetings. We had one person, you know, me, and uh, we we were just able to move much more quickly. And finally, uh, GM got uh, fed up enough that they told EDS go out and acquire somebody, and uh, they acquired us. And so, how how big was the uh, company at this point? Oh, maybe ten people. Ten people. And how did you finance this operation? I. Um, uh, mostly my my buddy. I was kind of the uh, uh, programming uh, side of the operation, the technical side. He was the domain expert and uh, also supplied the the capital we needed, uh, which wasn't a whole lot, but uh, what we did need for the company. Got it. Got it. So then, so then, in this case, I mean, this was your first rodeo, your first business. So what, what would you say that you, I mean, the first business is always the one that you learn the most and when you make the biggest mistakes. So what would you say that were those big lessons and those big mistakes? Well, you know, the, the big lesson and, and the biggest mistake that I, I drew from it, I think, was uh, overconfidence. Um, you know, it'd been, it was relatively easy. You know, we... we uh, uh, grew the the business. We sold it off. We made you know what seemed like a good uh, uh, amount of money, and so I turned around and started a, another business, just thinking I've got the Midas touch. Uh, you know this is this is easy. And uh, even though the second business had no clear idea, I took some uh, work I had done uh, in uh, grad school on artificial intelligence and expert systems and you know, tried to build a, a little tool and quickly found that without a, uh, you know, a clear uh, uh, idea for uh, a problem we were going to solve that people would pay for, uh, that very quickly we ran out of money and uh, were... In, in pretty bad shape, and it was it was kind of a good wake up call that uh, uh, you, you have to uh, be solving a problem for uh, somebody, and you can't just start a business and be successful because you think you're you're good. Absolutely, product market fit, you know, makes sense. Yes. Makes total sense. So, so I guess in this case, for the just just you know wrapping up the first uh, rodeo here with the uh, dealership programming, so. Did the terms of the transaction were were those public? Uh, I, I it was a private transaction, but what what I remember is that I walked away with um, 
around eight hundred thousand bucks. You know, uh, after the tax bite, it was more like five hundred thousand bucks. And you know, thought that, uh, especially at that point in my life, that. Uh, you know, I had enough money to do anything I wanted the rest of my life, uh, of but was quickly disabused of that notion. And and this was actually in the 80s. So, I mean, that 500,000 that we're talking about 500,000 today, I'm sure it was yeah. like much more with inflation and all, all that kind of good stuff. So so I guess the um, the um, for you guys making this transaction, I mean, was this something that you were looking to do or was it like because they all of a sudden knocked on your door or how did the transaction really originate? Uh, yeah, it was very much them coming to uh, to us. Uh, they, uh, as I said, they had been given the mission by uh, General okay. Motors to go out and and uh, find uh, some software. It was kind of an uncomfortable situation because the EDS guys hated us. Uh, yeah, they wanted. Uh, this was a shotgun uh, uh, wedding. They they did not. Uh, <laughs> this was admitting failure on this part. Like I said, they had a hundred people. Uh, right. They had spent uh, a couple of years trying to build a, a system, and to get forced to go out and buy this tiny little company in Indianapolis was a bitter pill for them to swallow. Got it. Got it. So then let's go into the next venture. So that was software artistry. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so why why did you jump right into it so quickly? Uh, complete overconfidence. We thought, you know, I thought, you know, I I'm brilliant. You know, anything I touch just turns to to gold. And even though I don't have a clear idea, uh, uh, you know, a clear application, uh, I I I thought that. Uh, I, I could leverage some of the knowledge I gained about expert systems and AI and built some tools. And, you know, this would be easy, uh, just like it was the first time. And did you go at it with some of the members that that you had uh, been working with at your previous company, dealership programming, or what was the founding team of software artistry? Uh, yeah, it was me. It was uh, uh, my buddy from uh, uh, the previous company who had uh, been our sales force. His name uh, is Joe Adams. So we were the founders, and uh, we uh, hired a, a couple of people from that company, but uh, uh, several new people, and um, very quickly blew through you know uh, the cash that that we had, and uh, in an amazingly short period of time, were uh, taking out. Uh, loans and uh, extending credit card debt just to make payroll. Got it. So then it seems that you did hit the wall. Uh, you did not have product market fit and things didn't go, um, you know, just as you had planned. So so what happened? How were those? Uh, I mean, I, I would assume that those were really dark days for you guys. Uh, they were. There were a lot of sleepless nights. Um, I, my buddy, I, I sent him out to... Uh, uh, talked to potential investors, and uh, there was a uh, uh, small venture fund in Indianapolis called CID Ventures, and um, uh, they uh, took a look at what we were doing and and uh, had some serious reservations. But they they did end up uh, investing, and um, one of the partners there, a guy named Bob Compton, Bob became a uh, 
tremendous collaborator and kind of uh, rolled up his sleeves and worked with us and helped us make the transition from selling tools to selling a solution. And that that made all the difference. So if you did not have like product market fit and and this was not a rocket ship yet, what what do yeah. you think happened or, or what was the trigger for these guys to really make a bet on you guys and invest? Uh, I'm... You know, they they really invested in the the people. They they realized that uh, you know we had not figured out this market, but uh, I I think that uh, they as as a lot of venture uh, capitalists do, uh, they like the people in, involved and uh, decided that uh, uh, they would invest based upon us and our capabilities. You know, the fact that we had had a, a successful exit before. Uh, and they, they felt that uh, they could work with us and help us uh, figure out a way to monetize this, uh, you know, what, what we had built. So how long did it take from hitting the wall and, and knowing that you didn't have something that was sticking with uh, that day where finally you were like, I think we got it? You know, I, I think it was about two years. Uh, you know, I had built uh, a, a tool. We were selling a tool. It was an expert system inference engine. And... Uh, we decided to ask ourselves what applications could we build using this tool that customers would have budget for and would want to buy. And uh, so we came upon the idea of building a help desk uh, automation uh, platform. And once we started selling that, we, you know, we went into major uh, corporations, bank of America and, and uh, uh, several others and uh, found that, Uh, it resonated with them and they uh, had budget for it. And they liked the fact that it was built on top of an, uh, um, an AI technology. And uh, within two years, uh, the situation had turned around and we were selling, uh, you know, in a, in a way that uh, led up to the company going public. So I guess, uh, and, and, and really amazing. And we'll talk about that just in, in a little bit. But I think that during those times, like you were saying that you guys uh, hit the wall, you were taking on debt, loans, credit card, whatever that was. What would you say that you discovered about yourself and about the entrepreneurial journey? Well, I, I think the, the biggest thing is that you have to do a gut check and um, you know, just ask yourself, are you committed to this? You know, are you are you all in? Um, and I just decided, and, and uh, my, my buddy concurred that, you know, we were, we, we were going to do anything to, uh, make this successful. We felt that we, we could, uh, but it, it just requires a d degree of commitment and to some ex extent, some self-abuse that <laughs> you just have to be prepared to tough through it. Uh, you know, it, it, it was certainly a hard slog for a while. And how, for example, are you able to, um, because I assume that when things are not working, morale is low. Uh, so how, how, how do you do to really keep the culture and, 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 and have people, you know, keep pushing? You know, you have to communicate confidence to people sometimes when, you know, it may not even be there. Uh, but I, I think for the most part, we led by example. I mean, I worked 120 hour weeks. I slept in the office. 
uh, I made it clear to everybody that I wasn't going to give up. And, and then nobody else, when you're smart, uh, part of a small team, you don't want to be the one who uh, lets other people down. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of it was just a matter of leading by example. Got it. Got it. So then let's talk about taking the company public. So before you took the company public, how much money did you guys raise? Oh, um, it wasn't a whole lot. I think CID ultimately put in maybe $3 million, something like that. And was it like, um, like a nerve wracking moment for you to, um, go from private to public? Yeah, it was, that was my first, uh, uh, experience. Although I'll, I'll, I'll point out uh, what was nerve-wracking was you know taking venture uh, capital, you know giving up equity. But in in uh, the case of that company, it was a, a wonderful thing because you know, for one thing we needed the money, but also uh, having the venture partner um, kind of become part of the team and help us figure it out. You know, it just brought in a, another uh, set of capabilities that we didn't have. And, and so that was uh, tremendous. Uh, I ended up leaving shortly before the IPO because I knew that if I waited until after the IPO, I was going to be stuck there for at least a couple of years. And I, I really had a hankering to go off and do another startup. So I... Uh, uh, shortly before the IPO, I left and went out on my own and uh, started a, a third company called Interactive Intelligence. Got it. And and this one, this this second one, this second company called Software Artistry, it was sold to IBM. Is that is that right? It ended up being sold to IBM. Yeah, uh, it went public. It uh, was public for a year or two and was sold to IBM for I think it was two hundred million dollars. Got it. Not bad. Not bad. So then. So then you go on and you start your third business, Interactive Intelligence. So yeah. how did you come up with the concept? Well, I, you know, fortunately at that point, I'd had experience now in, in dealing with uh, large corporations and understanding some of their needs. Uh, I knew how important customer service was to uh, large organizations. And um, uh so I started this company with the, the idea of trying to provide software-based communications uh, capabilities, you know, voice over IP, video, um, that could be used within a customer service setting in a, a large organization. So, so then what was the founding team? Who did you convince to kind of like join you in this early on? Uh, well, for the first few months, it was just me, <laughs> uh, very low, very lonely in, a, in an office. Right. Uh, but I um, hired a guy I knew um, uh, who was a, a PhD in computer science uh, out of uh, Purdue University, and so brought him up to head the uh, technical team. Um, several people from software artistry, uh, several of the sales execs moved over to uh, interactive intelligence. Um, and so, you know, we, we put together a pretty experienced team relatively quickly drawing from talent from that previous company. So then what, what ended up being the, um, the business model? Did you do like a, a bunch of testing to make sure that you got it right to the product market fit based on what you had learned before, or what did you do until you went and, and you were like, okay, this is the final business model that we're going with. 
you know, we just jumped in and started building. Uh, that, for better or worse, that's kind of my uh, proclivity. Uh, you know, we just started building a, uh, a product and a kind of all-in-one communications uh, system. Um, uh, we, we built it over the course of about a year in uh, 1996. Uh, in 97, we started selling it and sold $1.5 million worth. In 98, we sold $9 million worth. In 99, we sold $18 million worth and uh, went public. Wow. Really incredible growth. Now, you know, it's interesting the approach that you took here because typically founders or, or, or folks, you know, really recommend founders to sell and then they build it and they figure out how to deliver. It seems like here you build it first and then you figure out how to sell it. Yep, uh, that's that's pretty much what we did. Uh, but it, but it, at least at that point, it was based on some experience, you know, um, I, in that sort of market segment and in that sort of domain, and and with some knowledge of how corporate sales worked, um, you know, the corporate uh, purchase process. So um, yeah, it was it was a little bit of a gutsy move, but at least it was based on some uh, firm knowledge. Got it. And it seems that the sales were ramping up very nicely. So what were some of the strategies that you used to to be able to ramp that up, especially at the beginning? Yeah, we put together a direct sales force. You know, I, I hired uh, four of the sales leaders from uh, software artistry. Um, and um, so uh, they came in, put the sales team together, started building a, a network of uh, resellers. Uh, the other uh, thing that we did at Interactive that I, I learned the hard way from software artistry was to be prepared for international expansion from the beginning. Uh, so uh, we engineered our, our uh, software to uh, uh, be internationalized, uh, uh, even for, uh, you know, Asian, the double byte uh, character sets. Um, and so very quickly, uh, as I mentioned, we started selling in the U.S. in 97. We opened up European operations in 98 and Asia Pacific operations in 99. So even as a very young company, uh, we had uh, international sales and distribution in place. So being this um, a customer experience platform, what what kind of um, what are the top lessons that you've learned about creating a remarkable customer experience that perhaps you can share with the listeners that are looking at at really delivering that type of great experience to their customers? Well, yeah, the the thing that we focused on was uh, providing. Um, a great customer experience, regardless of the channel, uh, the communications channel. And you have to remember, this was at a time when uh, video was still very new. Uh, voice over IP was uh, very new. And um, so companies were really experimenting with things like uh, putting up uh, chat uh, widgets on their websites you know, allowing customers to call into customer service uh, uh, online and uh, uh, you know, using voice over IP and video over IP. Uh, so it was really cool. You know, lots of uh, really cool technologies. Uh, we did, did some really good work um, in speech recognition uh, so that uh, we could uh, uh, be monitoring even the tone of customers' voices during uh, interactions 
um, and you know, trying to arm the customer service agent with as much information about the customer as possible. And everything was focused on uh, resolving the customer's issue on the first call as quickly as possible. So I guess out of all the companies that that you've seen, and you know, it seemed like over, I think like 10,000 companies in like 100 countries or so were, were using this platform. What did you see were some of the common patterns of those co of those companies that were getting customer experience right? Um, what, they were um, consolidating all of their infrastructures so that uh, customers would have a consistent experience uh, with their organization, regardless of whether they called or they emailed or they did a text chat. Um, and, and that gave those companies a big competitive advantage because even today, you know, you can get a very disjointed experience uh, uh, by uh, choosing, you know, different uh communications channels with a, a, a company and nothing is more frustrating than, you know, to, to call or uh, you know, uh, engage with a, a company and have them transfer you around, you know, get uh, to try to get to the uh, right place. And so the companies who did it right, just you know, put the customer first, you know, and try to make it a very painless experience uh, for the customer. And again, whether it was their first call or their third call or an email or a text chat or a video, uh, making sure that the agent was armed with the necessary information to be able to uh, resolve the customer's issue. And and I guess you guys also build the um, the business in Indianapolis. So, I mean, we're we're talking about a place that is not as easy to, to get top talent as, as for example, uh, let's say San Francisco or or New York City. So so how did you guys get creative to really put together an unbelievable team to scale this thing up? Well, you know, paradoxically, in some ways, it was easier uh, because, um, especially at that point, there was not a whole lot of local competition. Um, you know, we were the most exciting technology company in the state of Indiana. And, you know, there were some great engineers coming out of Purdue University, Notre Dame, uh, Indiana University, a small engineering uh, college called Rose Holman. So there was great talent there. And uh, before us, uh, those people all went to the coast. And so we were able to draw on people who didn't want to leave, who wanted to stay uh, uh, within the community and even some who came back. Uh, so we were able to assemble an amazingly uh, strong team. So, so then I'm, I'm just wondering now, why did you guys decide? Because now it seems that companies are trying to delay as much as possible going public and, and all of this. And obviously this was a different time. You know, we're talking about yeah. late nineties or so. So what would you say was the trigger for you guys to say now is the time to go public? Well, you know, back then, uh, uh, that, that was the height of the dot-com uh, boom. And so, you know, it was very easy to go public. If you were a, a software company in 1999 uh, with uh, 19, or 18 million dollars of, of revenue, uh, even if you were losing money, you could easily go public. Um, uh, you know, this was uh, before Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, so, it, it just wasn't that awful. It was a fairly 
easy thing to get underwriters and um, and go public. Got it. And you were with the uh, company for 22 years until the yeah. acquisition, you know, actually yeah. happened. Why? Why so long? I mean, it's it's a it's a lot of time. 22 years. Yeah, you know, it goes by quickly for uh, for one thing, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, there were just lots of challenges along the way. You know, we went public in 99, and within, uh, in less than a year, we had a market cap of $750 million. So a market cap of three quarters of a billion dollars, which, you know, seemed crazy uh, even uh, at the time. I didn't sell stock because I, it just felt wrong. Uh So, uh, you know, the company, uh, after the IPO, within a few months, it uh, spiked up to 54 bucks a, a share uh, at that three-quarter of a billion dollar uh, market cap. Uh, within a year after that, there was the whole dot-com uh, crash, you know, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, and uh, the stock price fell to less than two bucks a share. Um And so, you know, it was, uh, I just felt a responsibility to stay on through kind of those dark years and uh, build the, the company uh, back up. And there were just all sorts of challenges. You know, when a company is going from one person to ultimately 2,200 people, every year it's a different company. Every year there's different challenges. You know, international expansion, there's changes in Uh, market conditions, changes in the technology landscape. So it was fun. It, it, it was really a different challenge uh, every uh, year or two. Got it. Quite a, quite a, quite a remarkable journey with, um, with this one, with interactive intelligence. So, so I guess, you know, just like we had spoken on the, on the last one, you had, you know, I'm sure on this one as well, your fair amount of, um, of lessons learned. And, and you were just talking about the dot-com bust And yeah. those those years were really terrible for everyone in the in the yeah. sector, no? And and kind of like um, a way for everyone to get back their feet on the ground and to and to keep uh, and to keep pushing. So I guess for for you uh, during this dark period, what would you say was the biggest breakdown that brought you the biggest breakthrough? Well, um, I'm, I, I I guess the biggest thing was fortunately we didn't. I have the, the same sort of financial extremes that uh, especially companies out in the Valley did, you know, we're bringing uh, masseuses and, you know, just spending crazy uh, amounts of, of money. You know, yeah. we didn't give in to uh, that sort of extravagance, but, you know, I was uh, not nearly as tight fisted as I should have been you know, in terms of, uh, hiring, we had, we hired way more people than we really should have expanded too uh, rapidly. And so I learned a lot, uh, at, you know, going through that experience, uh, that served me well in, in later years that as CEO, you just have to say no a lot. Everybody, every department wants to hire more people all the all the time. And it's so easy to just uh, get worn down and give into it. Uh, but for a decade, I personally approved every single hire uh, from that point, um, you know, it, uh, and made sure that we never lost physical, uh, physical discipline again. 
So for the people that are listening, uh, Don, that are right now, let's say, in the hyper-growth path and, and doing, you know, perhaps this mistake or about to make this mistake, how can they monitor things and keep the finger on the pulse so that they don't run into, into the cliff? Well, I, I think I'll answer that maybe within the context uh, of my most recent company, just to contrast. Um, you know, so uh, Interactive ultimately uh, uh, was sold to uh, a California company, uh, private equity uh, uh, funded company called Genesis uh, Telecommunications for $1.4 billion uh, in uh, 2016. And uh, I uh, maybe uh, just not knowing anything else to do, I went and started another company uh, called uh, Lifomic. And um, at Lifomic, you know, the approach that I, I've taken, you know, again, based on uh, past experience, um, uh, I, I, I really have uh, pushed hard to uh, have us concentrate every resource we can on uh, product engineering and, you know, um, market, market assessment, you know, product marketing. Um, and so we really don't have an, uh, even with 65 people, we don't have an HR department. Uh, you know, we uh, don't have a, a legal department. Uh, we, we really have tried to keep pretty bare metal uh, at Interactive, we uh, use cloud services for everything. Uh, we have one IT person. Um, you know, so we, we really have tried to create a, a streamlined sort of approach to the business that allows us to pour all the resources into actually building the technology. Got it. Got it. And you actually announced the launch of this company. The day that your uh, previous business got acquired for 1.4 billion, which is which is amazing, because typically, especially when we're speaking and, and, and talking about those big amounts, I mean, 1.4 billion is is quite an amount. I mean, normally you would stick around for doing the vesting and and all of that with whoever is acquiring you. So so how were you able to 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 to, to not do the vesting and resting done and go at it again? Well, you know, I. That's the way they structured. That. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't tie me, and I. I didn't ask. Right. Uh, but they did. They didn't. Uh, they didn't have me sign a non-compete. They didn't have me sign wow. a non-solicitation agreement. Nothing. And oh uh, I think they really thought because I was still the largest shareholder uh, at that time, and yeah. they thought I was probably going to, you know, buy a yacht and go sail for the next uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, and so they were, they were kind of miffed, uh, shall and, we say. And, and just out of curiosity, did you buy a yacht? No, <laughs> no, okay, no, got I, it. I, got I, it. I didn't. Uh, but what, what really pissed them off was, uh, probably about eight of the uh, senior, uh, engineers announced that they were resigning that same day and following me to this new company. Wow. So, so let's talk about this new company. So, so you announced this new business the minute the transaction was closed that day. And for how long have you, were you thinking about this, uh, this idea? Well, you know, I, I, as, as we discussed, you know, I, I started off my academic career getting an MD and, you know, thinking a lot about the life sciences and I then took this 
kind of unexpected right turn off into the software industry, not using, you know, any of my uh, medical training. But through the years, you know, I was always intrigued by what was going on in uh, the life sciences. And it was obvious the need for, you know, better uh, use of information and, and technology. Um, so uh, I think about four years ago, I had enrolled in a master's program uh, in biotechnology at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and I uh, had a blast going back through biochemistry, molecular biology, cell biology, and then going through uh, new areas like uh, stem cells, uh, uh, immunology, advanced immunology. And I, yeah, so when it became apparent that we were going to be selling interactive intelligence, uh, something just kind of went off in my head that, you know, I've got to do something uh, you know, that maybe I'm in a kind of a unique position, uh, having uh, uh, a lot of experience in artificial intelligence, uh, big data, cloud technologies uh, that I, I could go back and apply to uh, healthcare and in some sense kind of, you know, complete the circle. Got it. Got it. So. Really, really interesting. So then, so then, let's talk about the uh, the actual launch. So you launch. You have this um, this team of individuals joining you as well in the journey. So people that you already had worked with uh, during the days at Interactive, and and how were some of those days like? I mean, you were. It seems like you were very clear on this, and and you had already the roadmap in mind. I mean, how was the how were those early days like? Um. Well, I. <laughs> I, I knew that I wanted to do something uh, innovative, uh, uh, leveraging artificial intelligence and big data sorts of uh, uh, capabilities with healthcare, but I, I really didn't know what. Uh, so I, at Lifomic, initially, I, I brought in, as I said, some really high-end uh, cloud architects and software developers uh, from my previous company, but combined them with some uh, bioinformaticians, uh, geneticists, cancer researchers from Eli Lilly and uh, other organizations. And, uh, you know, we had an organizational meeting with the first uh, dozen or so uh, of us at my house out, out here in uh, Park City, Utah. And uh, uh, it was like a deer in, a, in the headlights look for, for these guys, you know, because the, uh, the scientists knew nothing about uh, uh, technology, uh, information technology. The uh, software developers couldn't even spell DNA. And uh, uh, so there were a lot of very fearful <laughs> expressions when I put everybody together and said, you know, we're going to go off and we're going to build a, a, a platform and you guys are going to work together to, uh, uh, you know, hopefully introduce some major innovations in healthcare using information technology. So tell us about the business model of Lifomic. Um, well, I... What we qu quickly realized was that uh, a lot of the exciting initiatives going on in, in healthcare uh, required uh, aggregation of, of data. You know, healthcare, especially with uh, uh, the completion of the Human Genome Project, the uh, exponential decline in the price of uh, uh, genomic sequencing, 
there's just this explosion of information that we now have in healthcare, and everybody knows that that data can explain, say, why one woman uh, will um, uh, receive treatment for breast cancer and be cured and go on and live a, a normal life. And another woman, ostensibly with the same condition, uh, uh, will receive the same treatment and die within a year. Uh, you know, we, we know there's a reason. And we know the reasons are uh, in the, the data. Uh, but healthcare is just, um, it, it, it really suffers from uh, a, a very balkanized approach to uh, data management. You know, the electronic medical record systems are abysmal. They're really designed more for uh, insurance reimbursement than actual care delivery. And so um, we decided we're going to build, do what we know how to do. At Interactive, we built um, an AWS-based uh, cloud platform, communications platform, uh, uh, that um, uh, really forced the hand of Genesis in uh, acquiring us. Um, and uh, it's now one of the largest uh, AWS-based or, or cloud-based uh, enterprise platforms in, in the world. So we decided we're going to take that knowledge and do something similar for healthcare so that we can combine all the information from electronic medical records, uh, from uh, uh, DNA sequencing of either what we were born with or the sequencing of cancers, um, and then offer that via a subscription service to um, academic medical institutions, cancer institutes, uh, biotech companies. Um, and so that's what we've been doing. Our, our initial collaboration was with my alma mater, the Indiana University uh, School of Medicine. Uh, and they're using our platform to assemble information for um, three different cancer teams uh, that are, are trying to find cures for triple negative breast cancer, uh, pediatric sarcomas in kids, uh, and then multiple myeloma, which is kind of a leukemia that afflicts older people. Really cool, really cool. And one thing that I think I I saw is that you did you haven't taken any outside financing for this. You actually finance this yourself. How much How much have you invested in in the business? Uh, about twenty million uh, so far. And why did you decide to take this? on yourself as a risk all on your own, rather than perhaps because other founders that I have also interviewed that have, you know, exited for, for a bunch of money as well in their, in their previous companies, they decided to, to bring on outsiders to bring perhaps some resources and, and, and expertise into the mix. Why did you decide to take this on all on yourself up until now? I, you know, I, I think control is the is the the key word. You know, when you take money from other people, and I've had even friends uh, want to give me money, and uh, I I've I've declined up to to this point. We we may take money at at some point, but the thing uh, about uh, being totally internally funded is that you don't have anybody to answer to. Uh, you don't have anybody to apologize to or explain to. So it, uh, uh, the, uh, the freedom that it provides us and being able to pursue 
whatever direction we want to change our minds, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, use the, the pivot word, uh, you know, it, that, that sort of uh, freedom has been wonderful in the formative years of a, a company like this, where, you know, we, uh, we really uh, didn't come in with a particular uh, application uh, set in, uh, in stone. Uh, you know, we knew we were going be going through an exploratory period. And so I, I've just enjoyed the freedom that we've had in not having anybody to answer to, you know, in, in terms of especially financial performance. Got it. You know, one thing that is really interesting that you just reminded me is that when you bring in, let's say, outside investment and you're like early on in the business, there is potential pivots. And you were alluding to this uh, earlier that you're going to have to do as a business to really get right whatever the market is requesting. And in many instances, yeah. you actually do the pivot. The VCs or whoever is investing in you do not really get excited about that. They do not reinvest yeah. on the next round, and then you are uh, left to death. Yeah, you know, there, there are all sorts of negative consequences. And, you know, fortunately, I've I've had the cash. Uh, you know, I, 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 I was able to do this. I didn't want to buy a yacht or an island or or anything else. And so, I mean, the two things I did, I did take 30 million bucks and I gave it to the, the medical school uh, to found a, uh, an immunotherapy uh, institute uh, at the, the School of Medicine. Uh, but uh, then I, I told my kids that, you know, I'm going to take a chunk of money here and I'm probably going to blow it on a new company. But it's my passion. It's something I get to do to swing for the fences, to hopefully make a difference in the mess of a healthcare system we have here uh, in the U.S. Uh, and it's it's something that I, I want to do. Um, and so uh, it's I, I've been very pleased with the decision so far. Really cool. So I guess in a, in a world done where the, I would say, vision of life omic is fully realized, what does that world look like? Well, um, so to answer that, I'll just uh, admit one other little uh, tangent that I indulged in. Uh, during my uh, uh, master's at Johns Hopkins, I had stumbled on um, uh, the uh, notion of intermittent fasting. You know, I, and I, uh, it's, it's kind of become a thing the last couple of years. Uh, but I, I became a, a true believer and uh, so, uh, really, just for fun, at Lifomic, uh, I hired a mobile team that was uh, uh, initially just uh, uh, three people and decided we're going to build a little app uh, that uh, I, I help, will help people engage in intermittent fasting and uh, share uh their, their results with uh, friends and family. And my excuse was that I, it's, it's good to have a mobile app that is testing out a cloud platform. You know, my hope was, you know, maybe we'd get a couple thousand people who would use our app. They would, their data would flow up to our cloud platform. It'd be a nice little scalability test. Uh, and it would be a chance to just indulge my passion, you know, something, something fun, you know, as I said, just be a little free app. Um, we have been stunned because instead of, uh, 2000 people, 
this month will surpass 400,000 uh, downloads for this app. That's uh, nice. up in the iOS and uh, Android app stores. What it, the success of, of that app has uh, caused us to uh, kind of uh, uh, evolve a, a even more grandiose strategy. So we're we're now completing a second generation version of this app that um, ultimately, you know, the best analogy I can come up with, uh, if you can remember the tricorders from uh, the uh, Star Trek uh, series. Okay. Uh, you know, a device that can uh, diagnose problems, uh, um, you know, uh, really kind of give you very personalized uh, medical care. I, I think that's where things are, are going. Um, you know, so basically what uh, we're, we're doing is rolling out this new app uh, that will give people personalized health guidance uh, based upon proven, you know, scientific sorts of uh, approaches, but combined with uh, specific knowledge of their genetic variants, their electronic medical records, uh, tying into uh, the mobile devices, the sort sort of mobile telemetry that many of us have, you know, whether they're Fitbits or Apple Watches, you know, that are uh, uh, collecting information about our heart rates and our um, uh, uh, activity levels, you know, all, all sorts of things. So combining that with artificial intelligence up in the, the cloud, I, I, I think this is where everything is, is going that, uh, I, I think it's going to be quite natural a few years from now to have, uh, all of your information, all of your medical information and consolidated in some secure repository up in the cloud that you have control over uh, and that you can give access to uh, your, your doctor, your wellness coach, your dentist, uh, you know, whatever sort of healthcare professional you uh, interact with, and that uh, can have an, uh, an AI-based system that is continuously monitoring all uh, the parameters of your health and alerting you or your clinician when it detects something uh, anomalous. Uh, and this is very much different from the situation you know we're in today where we go in and see our doctor for an annual physical and maybe spend a half hour you know and the doctor has to very quickly synthesize all the information about us and you know spot uh, anything that that might be uh, going wrong and uh, you know as the amount of data explodes uh, doctors uh, are are woefully ill-equipped to deal with it, and, and so you just about have to have you know some uh, degree of artificial intelligence and cloud technologies that are doing the day-to-day -day monitoring, and then as I say, send alerts to the the patients, the the physicians, um, and uh, uh, you know help them uncover uh, trends that uh, uh, might need to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah, no, makes uh, makes total sense. I think that the um, right now the whole system is all about curing rather than preventing, and I think that prevention is um, is definitely something that that is exciting here. So, so let me ask you this, uh, Don. Uh, you also, I mean, we've talked about a lot of uh, startups and and building and scaling companies, but 
But, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the father of three daughters. And I always say as well that children are like startups, except there's no exit. And I think in your case, you have eight startups where there is no exit. Is that right? Uh, that, that's right. I've got eight kids. Wow. So I guess for for all of us that are, you know, here, myself, and then also the guys that, the, the folks, the, the, the ladies and gentlemen that, that are listening to us, what kind of um, a one lesson would you share about, about you know, being a parent that, that for you it has worked out pretty well? You know, more than anything, I think it's just uh, availability. Uh, you know, uh, I my board of directors at, at uh, Interactive had uh, a lot of you know, really good people, including uh, Mitch Daniels, the former governor of uh, Indiana, who's now the president of uh, Purdue. And they would, would kind of chuckle because in a board meeting, if I got a call from one of my kids, I took it. And I, I was not apologetic about it, you know, and it might be 30 seconds to see, you know, do, is this an emergency? Do you need me? But more than anything, my kids know that I'm, I'm there and yeah, I've got other things that I'm into, but I will drop anything, anytime uh, to deal with uh, problems with my kids, to tutor them through chemistry or which I was doing until la late last night. Uh, I, you know, and I, I, so I think that's the main thing you can do as a parent, just to be available. I love it. I love it. And then for the, for the business side. So now that you've founded and, and scaled and also exited all these companies, I, I want to ask you something that I always ask our guests. And that is, if you had the chance done to talk to your younger self before launching a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself? You know, I, I think it's more more than anything, it's about finding something that you're passionate about, you know, that you really care about, uh, because it's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be easy. Uh, but w what maintains you through those difficult times is your enthusiasm for whatever problem you're trying to solve. And that's how you keep a team together. I mean, that's how you form a team in the first place, but especially how you keep them going through those dark times uh, to remind them that, look, guys, what we're doing is important. It, it matters. Somebody out there cares about uh, what we're doing. And, you know, ideally it makes some tangible difference in people's lives, which is, you know, what's so uh, especially gratifying about what we're doing at uh, Lifeomic. Got it. Got it. Well done. Very, very powerful. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I, you know, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Don Brown Indy. Uh, they can certainly reach out to me uh, there. Uh, our website is just uh, lifomic.com. Uh, and by all means, if you're interested in intermittent fasting, uh, it's a free app. Uh, I would go to the app store and uh, uh, get it. And, uh, let us know what you think. Amazing. Well, Don, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me 
at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.